0: Panama had historically been Colombia's favorite tax haven. So the information from the Panama Papers sheds light on offshoring to the country's most relevant tax havens.
1: Hi, I'm Clementine Van I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Juliana Londoño-Vélez is an assistant professor of economics at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a faculty research fellow at the NBER. She works on inequality and redistributive tax and transfer policies with a special interest in developing countries. We spoke about her most recent work on tax evasion in Colombia, joined with Javier avila Maya, in which she shows how greater enforcement can improve wealth tax collection. Hi Juliana,
0: welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm really excited to talk about your work, which is really a pressing issue. In the last couple of years, the idea of a wealth tax in a globalized world has been really broadly popular and with the general public. And I wanted to ask you if you could remind us briefly of the opposing views in economics on this idea and how you work can somehow help reconciling these views.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so in the United States and in many other countries, there's been this increasing concern about wealth inequality and the pernicious effects that it can have um, when there's kind of this rising concentration of income and, and wealth. And so this has led to this renewed interest in, in wealth taxation. And so what is a wealth tax? It's kind of a tax on the stock of assets, net of debt. And it's being proposed as a tool to both curb inequality and to raise revenue in a very progressive manner. And so in the US, there's been two prominent presidential candidates that proposed that the country enact a wealth tax. And many academics here have debated the extent to which wealth taxes could be enforced. So what is that? It means the extent to which wealthy individuals will legally avoid or illegally evade wealth taxes. And that's been a subject of uh, a great uh, debate. And while this this debate is occurring in, in the U.S. and many other developed countries, the discussion regarding developing countries has been muted. So on the one hand, you would think that developing countries are often kind of afflicted by this very acute income and wealth inequality. We know that Latin America is the most unequal region in the world. And so, we, you know, we... We think that these kind of countries could benefit from loving more progressive taxes. On the other hand, the developing countries also suffer to a large extent from from weaker tax enforcement capacity than say the country like the US. And in particular, they also suffer from a vulnerability towards tax havens. And so we could think that this might lead some people to conclude that taxing wealth is simply not feasible in the developing world and i think this is important in you know recently and because the the coronavirus pandemic has further kind of revived calls by some countries for having a wealth tax to help fund the very colossal fiscal interventions that it has engendered and so i think that colombia provides a unique opportunity to study wealth tax enforcement because uh what we're going to end up doing is the the findings that we we obtain help reconcile the views of the wealth tax both the skeptics who thought that a wealth tax will be evaded and as well as the enthusiasts that think that we should be taxing and it's actually feasible. Uh, and especially we, we find that can be feasible in, in even in a globalized world. And so on the one hand, we show that offshore evasion is an important threat to progressive wealth taxation, especially when the enforcement environment, as is the case in the developing world, is weak. On the other hand, we also see that strengthening the enforcement environment does have significant impacts on wealth tax compliance, and it raises revenue collected from the wealthiest individuals. And so if we improve enforcement, we can help safeguard the feasibility of progressive wealth taxation, even in settings that are characterized by high levels of inequality and a low baseline tax compliance.
1: Yeah, and so you mentioned that you work on Colombia. So could you tell us more about the context of this study and the specificities of this study?
0: Colombia has a long tradition of taxing wealth. The country established a wealth tax in the mid-30s and then abolished it in the 90s and then reintroduced it in 2002. And the wealth tax has remained in place until today. And so this is nice from a research perspective because it means that Colombia, unlike most countries, maintains administrative data on wealth which enables us to study wealth tax evasion at the top of the distribution. And so specifically what I do is to explore how wealth tax evasion responds to policies that aim to strengthen enforcement. And so how should we think of this? Well, the canonical framework for tax evasion by Allingham and Seinmo, it models the decision of whether and how much to evade as a function of the tax incentives the perceived threat of detection, and the penalty for misreporting. And so guided by this framework, we can exploit a series of exogenously timed events that happened to isolate effects along each of these components on tax compliance. And so specifically, Columbia took a series of enforcement initiatives between 2015 and 2017 that shifted taxpayers incentives to become tax compliant. And I'll mention three. First, it implemented a voluntary disclosure program. So this is the country's first comprehensive effort to encourage evaders to regularize their tax affairs by disclosing hidden wealth. Now, voluntary disclosure programs are quite popular these days. They've been implemented in at least 47 other OECD countries. They award generous tax breaks for delinquent taxpayers who choose to voluntarily come forward. And the way it worked in Colombia is that evaders could voluntarily come, you know, disclose an unreported or an underreported asset or an inexistent debt. And they did so in separate boxes in the wealth tax return that would be filed in 2015, 16 and 17. And the Colombian tax breaks were generous because in exchange for uh, paying a penalty, disclosers could waive all evaded income and wealth taxes from past years. Now, what's interesting as well is that halfway through the disclosure scheme, the Panama paper news story broke, and the name of Mossack Fonseca's clients is thrust into the public spotlight. And I'll explain what that um, did in a second, um, or what the Panama papers are. But for the moment, I'll just argue that this kind of event triggered an increase in the perceived detection probability, because the Colombian government reacted to the Panama papers... By scrutinizing Mossack Fonseca and its clients and contacting the taxpayers who are identified in the leak um, to request documentation of their offshore activities and transactions and three weeks later, Colombia and Panama announced that a tax information exchange agreement had been reached between the two countries, which is a move that the tax haven had resisted for years. And lastly, um, six months later, Colombia criminalized tax evasion for the first time so that if convicted, an evader could face up to nine years in prison. And so I'll just argue that these three exogenously timed events help us isolate the effects of changing the enforcement environment on wealth tax evasion and income and wealth tax compliance.
1: So you mentioned that because Colombia has a wealth tax, that means that you actually have access to some data uh, on wealth, but it's not as just that simple. So could you give us a sort of overview of the data sets that you use to conduct this analysis?
0: Yeah, so we start using administrative tax microdata on income and wealth, uh, both foreign and domestic, that is reported by individuals to the Colombian tax authority over the past 24 years. So it's have a long panel um, and then we merge these tax records with the leaked Panama papers. Um, now, Panama Papers is interesting in the Colombian case because um, incidentally, Panama had historically been Colombia's favorite tax haven. So the information from the Panama Papers sheds light on offshoring to the country's most relevant tax havens. The reason why this is so is because Colombia, you know, is uh, very close to Panama, so there's a big geographic proximity there. There's also the convenience of Spanish as the official language and Panama had, had has had political stability. So this is all turned into Panama being Colombians most preferred destination to park their wealth offshore after the United States. Um, and so the Panama Papers are all you capture a, a highly relevant part of offshoring by Colombians. So what is what is the data exactly? So. The Panama Papers is a microdata that was leaked in the spring of 2016 by a group of investigative journalists called the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And it was done along with two other massive leaks um, that is called the Offshore Leaks and the Bahamas Leaks. But the Panama Papers really is the largest one of the three leaks. And it comes from a Panamanian law firm called Mossack Fonseca, which at the time of the leak was the world's fourth biggest provider of offshore financial services. And it had been helping clients incorporate shell companies for nearly four decades in over 20 jurisdictions. So not only in Panama, but all along the Caribbean tax havens and in, in other places. And so the journalists, um, with the information from the list of clients of this uh, law firm, they identified... Uh, roughly 1,700 shareholders of offshore entities with a personal or entity contact address in Colombia, and so we, what we did, I down, you know, downloaded that information that's available online, and it has personal names, and so um, thanks to a collaboration with the Colombian tax authority, we're able to use the personal names to find 1,200 of these individuals in the personal tax records, and so this means that our match rate is around 70 percent which is quite high, I think, if we're, you're just using personal names, and this is really thanks to the naming custom of Hispanic America that is often practiced in Colombia, which involves two given names plus a paternal surname followed by a maternal uh, surname. So in, in my case, Londoño Vélez. Londoño is my, my paternal surname. Uh, Vélez is my maternal surname. Um, and so that's why I think there's a, a quite a good match rate. The, the main reason why we can't find some 500 individuals in the personal tax return is because of incomplete name information. So that means that in the Panama Papers, the individual only appears with one first name and one last name. So for instance, If I were to appear in the Panama Papers as simply Juliana Londoño, well, there are many of us in Colombia because it's a very common Colombian name. And so it'd be very difficult to find me in the tax returns and be able to make a unique merge. So we don't. um, Anyway, so that's that's the data that we use.
1: And so when you try to quantify uh, tax evasion, what do you find in, in Colombia?
0: Yeah, so the... First part of the paper is uh, aimed at quantifying and characterizing wealth tax evasion, and we show how evasion varies across the wealth distribution. And so to do this, we leverage the information from Colombia's voluntary disclosure scheme, and then we cross-validate its signal value using the random leak data. And we find that Colombia's disclosure program helped to reveal hidden wealth worth 1.7% of GDP, which is an order of magnitude larger than what a similar disclosure scheme in the US recovered. And then we want to know what is the likelihood of you disclosing under the scheme. So what we do is we rank taxpayers from from less to more affluent using the wealth that they report in the tax statements from 2013, so the last fiscal year before the voluntary disclosure program. And we add any wealth that they disclosed under the scheme. And we find that admission of evasion rises sharply with reported wealth so that the fraction of Colombians who reveal hidden worth is quite negligible at the bottom of the top 5% and then rises sharply all the way until we reach the top 0.01% of the distribution. And in all, the wealthiest 0.01% of individuals, which is an exclusive group of around 3,000 individuals, is 55 times more likely to disclose than the top 5% overall. The second thing that we find is that there's substantial evasion. So, two fifths of the wealthiest 0.01% of Colombians admit to hiding wealth. This is, if you want to compare it to other countries for which there's information like this available, um, this is around threefold the equivalent share of Scandinavians acknowledging noncompliance. On average, The the third result that we see is that on average, Colombian evaders confess to hiding one-third of their wealth and almost 90% of the disclosed assets had been concealed offshore. So this really reveals how pervasive offshore tax evasion is at the top of the distribution. What we see in the data is that confessed evaders are significantly more likely to own foreign financial assets in tax havens like Barbados, Bermuda, the Cayman Islands, Uh, Monaco, Panama, Switzerland, and the Virgin Islands. And so this really reflects the uh, predominant role of tax havens and the role that they play in tax offshore evasion. Um, And so this is also consistent with the uh, um, idea found by others um, that the wealth management industry in tax havens really caters to the elite because Colombian taxpayers who own assets in tax havens belong to the very top of the country's wealth distribution.
1: So once you have established the like the extent to which people manage to evade uh, their, their tax, you also evaluate the impact of this 2015 disclosure program. Uh, what do you find when you do this exercise?
0: Yeah, so once we describe the prevalence, the distribution, and the nature of wealth tax evasion, we can then examine how uh, evasion responds to sequential changes in the enforcement environment and so I'll just mention two, which is one is the tax tax incentives, and the second one is the perceived detection probability. So first, um, we, we can estimate the effects of the, the generous tax breaks that were awarded uh, to evaders for disclosing hidden wealth on both wealth and income tax compliance over time. And so we use a difference in difference approach that essentially compares wealthy individuals who we define as wealth tax filers, people who file for the wealth tax, and who disclosed under the scheme at any um, in the first year versus those who never disclosed under the scheme in the three years in which the scheme took place. And in doing so, we find that wealth tax compliance is persistent. So three years after their initial revelation, disclosers report 49% more wealth. And by virtue of disclosing the return on those assets that had been hidden, they also pay 39% more income taxes, which shows that Disclosures and wealth have positive spillover effects into the income tax system. And the higher tax compliance, um, plus the penalties that are associated with disclosing under the scheme, help raise the effective tax rate. So what's that? That's the total income and wealth taxes expressed as a share of reported wealth. Because disclosures are rising in declared fortune, as I mentioned, the policy helped to raise overall tax progressivity with the effective tax rate almost doubling at the very top of the distribution. And so this shows that changes in the enforcement environment by reducing evasion and generating more revenue from the wealthiest taxpayers really helps to enhance the overall progressivity of the tax system. That's in the first part. Then, second, we find that evasion responds not only to the tax incentives, but also to a very credible threat of detection. So as I mentioned before, halfway through the disclosure scheme, the Panama paper news story broke, which exposed tax evaders named in the leak to government scrutiny. So we can exploit the exogenous timing of this leak and compare wealth tax filers who appear named in the leak, treated, or not named in the leak, control, before and after the leak occurred. And so we find that the threat of detection caused by the Panama Papers leak caused a 27 percentage point increase in the likelihood of disclosing, which if we work to compare that to the pre-leak treated mean, it represents a more than six-fold increase in disclosures. And consistent with a drop in offshore tax evasion in particular, the disclosures of foreign assets increased by an even greater amount by 29.6 percentage points. And so consequently, um, taxes paid by those named in the leak more than doubled. So you could argue, well, is a voluntary disclosure program successful because of the Panama Papers? Not really. Because the overwhelming majority of disclosures were not named in the leak. So the Panama Papers, on the aggregate, really accounts for a very small fraction of all disclosures made by delinquent taxpayers.
1: La minute technique. In this podcast, researchers take one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their work. And so I wanted to ask you if you could explain in simple terms why you use the so called inverse hyperbolic. Sign transformation.
0: Yeah. So applied econometrician often transform variables to make the interpretation of um, the variables that they're studying uh, easier. So, for instance, taking the logarithm of a variable has been a popular transformation. And so, one problem with taking the logarithm of a variable that, you know, helps take into account outliers. When you look at, say, a variable like income, what it does is that it doesn't really allow retailing um, zero valid observations because a log of zero is undefined. And so in cases where having zero of a particular variable is rare, then this might not matter. But in income, we often see that people report zero income, especially very wealthy individuals who choose not to report income because they're evading income taxes, right? So then applied econometricians have resorted to doing several things when taking the natural logarithm of a variable when the variable has zeros. One uh, alternative is to add one to the variable prior to the transformation. So instead of looking at log of x, you look at log of x plus one. Another alternative is to apply the inverse hyperbolic sine transformation, which approximates the natural logarithm of that variable and it allows retaining zero-valued observations.
1: So one of the important takeaways of your work is the fact that these results are somehow challenging the way we measure wealth inequality. Could you tell us more about this?
0: Yeah, so, you know, there's been a quest to... Move from the study of income inequality into focusing on wealth inequality. Um, And uh, immediately there's been a a concern of how do we even measure wealth in countries where the government doesn't systematically capture wealth. So this has been, you know, this has led to a huge discussion about uh, how do we measure wealth inequalities in countries like the US. Um, And moreover, there's been a concern that even if the, a government could capture wealth, there's always going to be the issue of if we have massive evasion, then what we're capturing really isn't reflective of the total amount of of wealth inequality, especially if we think that the people who are evading wealth m- the most, wealth taxes the most, are the wealthiest individuals. And so what we did in the last part of the paper is that we show that the revelation of these mass fortunes offshore can help... Researchers be more able to capture wealth at the very top of the distribution. So what we first estimate is that in in 2017, the top 1% in in Colombia had around 40% of total wealth. Um, That's around what researchers have captured for the United States. And then the question is, well, how much more wealth can be can remain offshore because we don't think that the issue of offshore evasion is solved, right? I think there's still a large amount of wealth that is still remains hidden. And so we can play around with the assumptions about the distribution of offshore wealth. Um, and so we, we doing so, we find that accounting for unreported offshore wealth increases the top 1% share. By anywhere between three to six percentage points and because offshore wealth is very highly concentrated at the very top of the distribution when we account for it the increase in um, top one percent wealth shares really is much larger um, and so that's what that's what we did
1: to conclude i wanted to ask you if you had a recommendation for our listeners of a book a movie or anything that you would like to share
0: yeah, I actually have to confess that this was the hardest question uh, because there's been a lot of books that have really changed my perspective on economics and inequality. And so I started thinking like, since the coronavirus pandemic, I've enjoyed reading um, the new book, um, Good Economics for Hard Times um, by uh, uh, Banerjee and Duflo and, and Emmanuel Saiz and Gabriel Zuckman's The Tribe of Injustice, which are, is another good reference for inequality. But I thought I'd mention a book actually that's a bit different. And so that also came out this year. It's written by Miguel Urquiola at Columbia University, and it's called Markets, Mind, and Money, Why America Leads the World in University Research. It takes us on this very interesting historical journey of how universities worked some centuries ago and how they've changed in the 19th and 20th century and how they now work now in the 21st century. And so it shows us how Europe and Amer- European and American universities became really quite different. Um and a different kind of competition for research talent emerged. And it has a really interesting description of how in the turn of the century, American universities who were free to change their business model, they followed a kind of entrepreneurial spirit and and their quest for expertise and talent, they went after a sorting by talent rather than breeding. Uh, or rather than teaching or anything else, so, and so the U it shows how the U.S. started producing the best university research than any other countries, and it ends with a really interesting perspective on the challenges that lie ahead for university research performance, um, which include technological changes like the rise of Coursera, or political risks that are related to inequality that we've just discussed, as well as funding and immigration and this kind of um, of out-of-control increase in cost. So I think I I would mention that book in particular.
1: Thank you so much, Juliana, for your time and for this
0: conversation. Thank you for having me. I enjoy talking with you.
1: This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Van in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.